uh, miraculous, miraculous life. Lucky me. Um, first of all, Janesta, thank you for inviting me and for being um, such a great communicator because with time zones, that sort of thing. And I do not know how my friends and home group members find out that I'm going to be somewhere. But uh, how much do I appreciate you guys showing up? Cynthia's a sober sister. Lorraine's a sober sister. Susan, I sponsor. Richard's from my home group. Kevin's from my home group. Uh, Bob's here somewhere, but not on camera. And I saw Ildi a little bit ago, who's a sober sister. So it's. Uh, I want to just tell you guys, thanks for... Um, for um for comment <laughs> so thank you um how do i usually get started well i think where y'all are today you have a new king and uh I, I know you might not consider it quite as big but here today in louisville kentucky we have a big pony race it lasts a total of two minutes and the city shuts down for two weeks getting ready for that kentucky derby and so it's a lot of fun around here um right now and it's uh it's uh, it's it's an exciting time in our city, and I think it's a very exciting time in your country. But um, it's always weird for me, like where to start when I know there are people that have heard me five million times, but I still kind of got to start at the same place. You know what makes me an alcoholic, and you know that is the, you know how it was that 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 kind of I think we want to get to, and then how did I. How did I concede to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, which is what happened that let my life change? And um, what makes me an alcoholic, I had a lot of consequences. I had what most people would consider a fairly low bottom. Uh, but that's not what makes me an alcoholic. That's not what makes anybody an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is that when I put alcohol in me, I react different to it than other people. And so when I put alcohol in me, I cannot guarantee you how much I will drink. And I can't guarantee you how I will behave when I drink. Now, I think where some people get stuck because in Alcoholics Anonymous, we tell lots of big stories, is they think about the time when they could. But what it says in the doctor's opinion is that the average temperate drinker can, can always have control, can always guarantee how much they're going to drink, and can always guarantee their behavior. And uh, for the alcoholic, they can't. That doesn't mean never. That means they can't guarantee which time it will and which time it won't. Um, I started drinking when I was really small, and I drank for what it talks about in the big book, the effect produced by alcohol. And what that looked like for me is that um, I had a challenging beginning. I was adopted. I was adopted into a home where there was um, a lot of abuse, and my my environment wasn't safe, and I felt like I was bleeding from the inside out. And when I drank, I didn't hurt as much. That's what drinking did for me. It let me feel different. It let me not feel as desperate. It didn't make me taller. It didn't make me prettier. It just let me be less desperate, and it let me numb out so that life was tolerable. And I believe for a long time that what drinking did was save my life. I didn't, I didn't put a gun in my mouth and blow my brains apart. I didn't take a bottle of pills and go to sleep and never wake up because I had alcohol to numb life out enough to make it tolerable. Now, I got here the first time in 1980, so five years before I was to get permanent sobriety. And if you are somebody that has been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for a couple of years, let me tell you, that's okay. 
That's okay. There's no shame in that. It talks about it in the forward to the second edition of the big book. What, 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 what it says is 50% of us come here and get sober right away the first time who really try. And what I think we mean by really try is we, we try to get a sponsor. We try to work the steps. We do the best that we can. And it says, but another 25% of us get sober after several times of really trying. That's me. And then it says another 25% never achieve long-term sobriety, but their life improves because they come back here. And so I've been saying this a lot when I talk recently, mostly because I think that um, I think it's important. I think alcoholism creates all this shame inside of us. You know, our chin doesn't go up anymore. We don't look people in the eye. Our shoulders go down. We have all of the shame. And I think that you need to know that an Alcoholics Anonymous, that doesn't need to be here just because you didn't do this thing perfect. And, uh, and that, that, that you're loved and always welcome, always welcome. The first time I got here in 1980, I got here, and I don't know what you call it where you guys live, but I had seven felonies. And so what those are, things that send you to prison. And um, by the time I got here, um, I was very young. Um, I've been on my own since I was 12. Um, for the most part, I was in over 25 institutions, foster homes, state mental hospitals, jails. Um, I um, carried a gun. It's not uncommon in the United States, but it's uncommon for a young girl. I lived on the streets. I hitchhiked from one end of this country to the other. This country is huge. So it's a lot of land to travel on hitchhiking as a young female. I did whatever it took to survive. I did what girls do on the streets to survive. And I'll just let you use your imagination there. We share in a general way. And um, I had no hope. I had no dreams. I didn't have nothing I was going to grow up and be. I was blotting out my existence until it would be over. I wanted death to come soon. I did not, I did not have anything to live for. That's what it was like for me. So anyway, I woke up in a hospital and I was strapped down, hanging on a wall. And uh, and um, I was black and blue from my chin to my knees where the cops had beat me to keep from shooting me. But I'm always a victim and that's all I could see. So when I looked at myself, I said to the nurse, I said, and this is the second time I heard this. I said, I said, who did this to me? Because see, all I could ever see is what the world did to me, how the world hurt me. I could never see how I set any of it in motion. I could never see how I participated. All I could see was how unfair life was. And the nurse said, Cindy, you did it to you. You're an alcoholic. And then she told me that the sheriff was coming and I was not going to juvenile. I was going to adult jail and I was going to be tried as an adult, which is scary. The first time I heard I was an alcoholic, I was 14. I was living in a foster home. And my foster mom, my foster brother and sister had muscular dystrophy. And when they went to bed, my foster mom and I would drink beer and play chess. And she said, Cindy, you are, you are an alcoholic. She said, I probably am too. She said, whatever you do, don't go to that A of A. She said, they'll try to make you believe in God. And I retained that. And she said, look at my kids. See, they never walked. They couldn't take care of themselves ever. She said, clearly there's no God. Now, I loved being in a foster home because I mattered there. I was useful. I was helpful. And it was the first place I ever mattered. And she only had one rule for me. At 14 years old, I was not allowed to drink until the kids went to bed. 
which is pretty liberal for a 14 year old. But, um, but I could not keep that. I could not keep that rule. And I got kicked out of that foster home because I drank because I have a magnificent magnifying mind that always wants to tell me this time it can be different. This time you won't notice. This time I can sneak it. This time I can control it, but I can't. So fast forward these three years, I'm in jail. I'm going to be tried as an adult. And I go into serious alcohol withdrawal and I go into alcoholic seizures in jail. That's my good news. What seemingly bad things always happen to me always turn out to be helpful if I get out of the way enough. And because that happened, somehow I got to go to treatment and I got a shot. And I went to treatment and I learned a few things in treatment. They made me become an emancipated adult, even though I was barely 17 years old. So in the United States, that means that legally I became an adult and I was responsible for me. And my probation officer told me I needed for that to happen because um, be, because I've been acting like an adult for a long time, you know, and uh, and it was time to be an adult. And so I went to a treatment center and didn't get much out of it. And part of the reason I didn't get much out of it was they said, work these steps and your life can be different. But see, I thought I was crazy. I've been in all these places and I had all these labels and I, I, I felt so broken. And everybody had told me I was broken. And I thought, I just didn't think I got to be one of you. I said, I wish I was an alcoholic. It'd be so simple if those little steps could fix my life. But you don't understand. You see, I'm broken. And I meant it. And so I wouldn't take the steps. And I hung out in AA because I was afraid. Fear ruled me, but I didn't think I had fear because I'd lived so fiercely on the streets. I was foul-mouthed. I was, I, was, I was still like a street person in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went through, I used people, I got people to let me stay at their houses. It's what I knew. And I lived the same way I'd always been living. And I got drunk and I got in trouble again. And that's when I got tried as a juvenile. I always get in trouble. It's my good news. My brothers didn't get caught and they didn't get in trouble. And neither one of them has fared as well as me. And I'll tell you about that later. But anyway, I got to go to a, to a halfway house. And in that halfway house where I was an emancipated adult, um, they made me go to AA meetings early and help set up. And that's the magic, guys. Because you know what happened when I went to meetings early and I helped set up and I helped make coffee? I started to feel like I deserved to be an AA. People started to know my name. And there's nothing sweeter to a newcomer than somebody remembering their name. And so all of a sudden, this thing that I thought I was too broken for, that I didn't deserve to be in. If you don't feel like you deserve to be in AA, bless your heart, I get it, you belong here. And so I started to be able to listen because I was so shielded and protected with this brokenness that I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't let anybody in. I couldn't believe. I couldn't hope because I was just so angry. And that anger was fueled by being so afraid. And it took multiple layers of working the steps to get to that. But I could finally hear and I could begin to recognize myself and some of you. When you talked about your drinking, when you talked about how you didn't intend for it to land that way that night, but it did anyway, all of a sudden it's like, okay, 
that's happened to me so many times. Now it's not just that I'm bad because I thought I was bad and broken. It's not just that I'm bad that I drink this way and act this way. It's, it's that, that, it, that there is something inside of me. I'm an alcoholic and I react differently to alcohol. Then he said, Cindy, you got to get a J-O-B, a job, a job. Well, I have no identification. I never had a driver's license. There was nobody to sign for one for me, right? You just heard my job history. It's not exactly something you want to put on a resume. And so, um, so, and I didn't have any transportation. They said they didn't care. See, people didn't care how I felt anymore. Because see, I kept waiting to feel better about me so that I could act how other people acted. See, I thought you got to feel better first and then you act it right. And what they began to teach me is that it was by acting right that I began to feel better. And so I had to get a job anyway. And I did, I got a job setting tobacco in the fields in Kentucky. And if you know anything about setting tobacco in the fields, it's very hard work. And you know what happened? I got the reward that people get that work hard that I didn't know, even though it was hard work and paid very little, I began to have my own money. And instead of manipulating you after meetings to buy my pie, instead of using people in AA to get my needs met, to buy my cigarettes, I started to buy my own and my head started to go up and my shoulders started to go back. And that only happens, self-esteem. It only happens when I act differently. I wanted the right probation officer, the right shrink, the right anything so that I could feel good enough to act like people. We act good enough so we can feel better. And then they said, see, I didn't go to high school. I didn't just not graduate high school. I didn't go. I was on my own on the streets. And they said, Cindy, we want you to take classes and get your GED. I said, GED, man, that's for losers. That's for people that didn't go to high school. And for those of you in another country, I don't know if you even have this, but it's an equivalency test that you can take that says you know what somebody that went to high school knows. And so they had me take this pretest. And when I took the pretest, even though I'd not been to high school, I had read really well as a little kid. And so through that, I got to, uh, I, I took the pretest. I didn't need to take the classes. I took, I took the test for the GED and I scored in the top 2% of anybody that had ever taken that test before. And all of a sudden that thing that just sucked and was for losers, all of a sudden it's like, look at me, I'm Cindy, I got a GED. And see, that's the way I roll. If I think I can't do it, it sucks. If I can do it, it's the best thing ever. I do the same thing with friends. If I think you're not gonna like me, I don't like you first. You know, it's like, that's all of that fear running me, running my life, that, that, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not gonna fit, that I'm not gonna belong. So I walk into everything with all of my defenses and all of my walls. I don't do that today, but I did do that. And when that comes up for me today, because the old things from 40 years ago that came up can still come up. And one of the biggest mistakes I can make is to pretend they can't, is to pretend I should never have that happen because I'm sober this long and I should be weller than that. Instead, what it is, is it's an indicator that something's missing. I need to go find a way to reconnect with my higher power. I need to find a way to dig deeper and to be able to let go at six and seven at something at a deeper level. And, and I still really try to do that. So anyway, I get out of there. I go back to Ohio. I'm an AA Wonder Girl. You've seen us. 
you know, I mean, trust me, when you come from a bottom like mine, where every other word coming out of your mouth is foul mouth and, you know, da 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 da, you start talking in full sentences and people think you're doing great. And uh, I got a lot of attention and I loved it. And I loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't believe I got to have this life. I was so excited. You've seen these newcomers like me, like they're just on a pink cloud. They can't believe they get to have a real life. They can't believe people will love them and they get to participate in life. And that was me. And a lot of great things happened. And I talked everywhere and I was involved and I went to make some amends and I got this job that was way over my head. And my ego took the job, even though inside I knew I wasn't ready for it and didn't know how to do it. Because here's where I am. I have to be more to be enough. I have never needed more or better to be better than you. I need it more and better so that I could feel as good as you. I need a little better car so it's good enough for you to ride in. I need a little better house so it's good enough for me to invite you in. I need a little better job so it's good enough for me to talk to you about business. And I thought this was a gift and I didn't know that you could turn it down. So they gave me business cards and I'm I'm 20 years old. I'm two years sober when I get this job. And, uh, and I start going to the AA clubhouse I got sober in in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I start passing out my business cards and, and telling people, you work the steps, you can have this too. And they gave me a secretary. But what I would do is I would go to that job and I would be so afraid when they were going to figure out who they hired. And I would wonder, what do you do with the secretary? And I would just wait for them to know who I was because I knew I wasn't good enough for the job. I knew I didn't have the skills for the job. And the truth is, I didn't even like the job, but I thought I was supposed to. And so instead of coming to A and telling you, I'm afraid, I don't know how to do the job. I don't know what to do. Instead, I came and told you how great it was and how great I was because I was doing it. And so that's called dishonesty. I didn't see it as dishonesty, but it's anytime that I am not transparent and authentic about who I am and the same person everywhere in my life, I'm dishonest. I'm living a lie. And that's what I was doing. And I turned, I stayed there almost a year. I turned, I was right ready to turn three, three years sober. I was 21 years old and I woke up drunk and I don't remember drinking. I loved AA. I went to meetings. Meeting makers don't always make it. Meeting makers that work the steps and are honest about what's happening in their life tend to make it. But I wasn't. I was being dishonest. And so that shame I talked about earlier that we all have, it's part of alcoholism. It just came over me because I was telling myself I wasn't good enough to tell you the truth. And so that shame comes back. And the only thing that will make that feel better, that will numb that out so I could tolerate myself in life is to take a cocktail. And I don't remember drinking. I woke up drunk. And you know what I felt? I didn't feel bad. I felt relieved. I felt relieved because I didn't have to go back to that job. I now had an excuse. I thought I needed an excuse to not go back. And so I went to an AA meeting and I raised my hand. I said, I drink. I'm ready to be sober. What I didn't count on is what happens in the, um, in the doctor's opinion. I didn't count on the phenomenon of craving taking off from one night of drinking, but it sure did. And I left that meeting and I bought a bottle of booze. And even though I didn't want to drink, I lost my choice in drink. Because that's what happens with alcoholics. Once we put some in us, 
it's different for us than it is for other people. It just is. And for almost a year, I drank. And sometimes I tried to come back to AA, but by the end of that year, my life drinking became normal to me. And there was no bravado. There were none of the big jails or big war stories, none of that. By the way, that has nothing to do with alcoholism. What happened to me was I became just a garden variety, disgusting alcoholic because alcoholism is gross and it is disgusting. And what happened was that, um, well, I'm a blackout drinker and as a woman, as a blackout drinker, and it may be true for men too, I don't know, but I will come out of a blackout. And what that means for me is I can wake up in the middle of a conversation and have to try to catch up and figure out where we are. I can be wide awake and wake up. But what happened for me was I, I'm a sexy alcoholic and I always tell this because I need not ever forget. I need not ever pretty up my drinking and make it be something that it wasn't. My drinking was gross. I had puked on myself. I had urinated on myself. I came to, I'm in the middle of the grass. I don't know where I am. I am terrified because I don't know how to get home. And I have woke up so many times in so many traumatic situations and not known how I got there or how to get out. And so I don't just wake up with fear when I come out of a blackout, I wake up with terror. And so I wake up and I'm with terror and I'm crying like a little baby. And, and, and here's the real pitiful, incomprehensible, demoralizing part of that. I'm sitting right in front of where I live, afraid about how to get home. That's disgusting. But here's what happened. My miracle happened that night. And something changed inside of me. Because most of my life, I thought if my life were only different, I might not be alcoholic. If I had stability, if I had a safe place to live, if I had people that loved me or cared about, well, I got all that and I drank. I'm just as alcoholic as ever. And what happened was I surrendered to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. And what that means for me, that surrender, which is different than acceptance. I had always done step one as we read it off the wall. That's easy. I've never known manageability. I, I, I have never had control or power over my drinking. But what happened when I surrendered to my innermost self was that no matter how much my life changed outside of me, I never would. See, I had held a reservation that someday, somehow, maybe I could manage my drinking if my life circumstances were just right. And what made me surrender was I discovered that just isn't true. And my sponsor, you know, she, she, she said, Cindy, I want you to, because I called somebody that, that, that I watched get sober. I knew way more. I said, I memorized the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was another place that even in AA, I needed to know more to be enough. And so I would spout off all my quotes about the big book and show you how much I knew, which has nothing to do with recovery. Recovery is not a knowledge thing. Recovery is a spiritual experience. It's a personality rearrangement. It's something becoming so different because I let go, not because I made it happen, but because I let go. You know, I let go and trusted something bigger than me to help me become what I'm supposed to be. So anyway, she said, Cindy, what's the worst thing that happens if you drink again? And I said, what we usually say in, Ohio, in, in the United States, I don't know what y'all say, but we say we'll go to jail, a mental hospital, or we'll die. And she laughed at me. She said, you're not afraid of any of that. And see, I wasn't. I grew up in jail. I'm practically the vice president when I go there. I'm quite a success. 
And in a state mental hospital, it's not hard to win. If you get the most dessert, you're a winner. And I always got the most dessert. And death, I've ridden a Harley Davidson my entire recovery. Statistically, that's not somebody afraid of dying. So I'm not afraid of any of those things. I might be now, but I wasn't then. It was a way of life for me. She said, I want you to dig deep. What are you really afraid of if you drink again? What's the worst thing that happens? And I thought about it. I'm glad I did. And here's what I came up with. The worst thing that happens is I drink and I don't die. I live 20 years the way I've been living. Because see, the way that I lived drinking was I lost my ability to love. And loving means putting you first. Loving means it's not always about me. And when I drink, my drink will come before you every time. If I promise I'm going to show up for something and I start drinking, I probably won't be there. I'm a black hole that no matter how much I want to believe I love you and lie to myself and tell me I do, I'll use you. I'll take advantage of you. And I won't consistently show up for you. I don't want that to be my legacy. I don't want that to be my life. And I had been in AA long enough to know that if I really did this deal you do, my life could have meaning. It could have richness. It could be purposeful. Now, I always tell a handful of stories about recovery. I'm a big step person. I have big book meetings. I have step studies. I participate. I sponsor. I have a sponsor. I am all in. I am, I am more than 37 years sober, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous as much today as I did 42 years ago when I first got here. You saved my life. You gave me a life worth living. And, and, and I invest more today than I've ever invested. I cannot be too busy for Alcoholics Anonymous. But the real rubber meets the road with how do we stay sober when life starts happening? How do we stay sober when people don't love us anymore, when people die, when people leave us? How do we stay sober when people do love us? Like it all was dramatic and traumatic for me, Right. So the first thing that happened that was challenging for me was I was about 11, well, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky from Ohio where AA was founded. And it was very hard to adjust to the way they did AA here until I started stopped thinking about me and how I was going to feel okay in meetings. And I started thinking about what I could bring. And I started looking for newcomers to help. And it was only then and then that I began to feel a part of Alcoholics Anonymous in Louisville, Kentucky. And today I think we have the best AA in the world and even better than Ohio, but don't tell anybody. So, you know, but it's because a fellowship grew up around me, not because I needed it. I wanted it. A fellowship grew up around me because I started looking for who needs me. How can I help you? And it's the only time I ever feel whole. It's the only time I ever feel complete. You know, when I was drinking, Mother Teresa could not have made me feel loved. Nobody could. And it's all I thought I wanted. I never felt loved until I learned how to love you. And when people say, we'll love you till you can love yourself, forget it. We'll love you until you can go love somebody else. Because it is in loving somebody else that we begin to really feel loved and complete and whole. That's the truth. Oh, my goodness. So when I was um, when I was 11 years sober, my grandmother died. When I was a kid, there weren't a lot of safe people for me. That What I've learned through doing a lot of step work is that people loved me. They just couldn't love me every day. They just couldn't be the same every day. Everything was unpredictable except for my grandma. And my grandma always loved me in the same way. She was the kindest person. She went to church all the time and never threatened me or scared me with it. 
You know, everybody else made me afraid of church, but her, she just said the same thing you guys told me, Cindy, God loves you. And she loved everybody. She didn't care what color they were. She didn't care nothing about nothing. She grew up in an era where most people were prejudiced and she wasn't a bit. She just loved. And uh, she, 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 she taught me that God always is here and that I'm always going to have fear and I'm always going to have God. And it's the one I feed that wins. If I feed the fear, oh, I'm going to be so afraid. And I believe that sober too. I believe both things always live here. But the one I cater to is the one that wins. So when my grandma died, she was terrified. And uh, I got so mad at God. I said, God, how do you take this woman that's done nothing but serve you her whole life, love you and your kids, and you let her be afraid to come meet you? And at 11 years sober, I took a walk in the dark. And I believe that if we stay long, sober long enough, all of us will have our walk in the dark. It'll be for different reasons. But my walk in the dark was that I disconnected from God, this thing that had saved me. And God, by the way, so if you have prejudice about that word like I did, I can't tell you who, what God is. The big book says God's infinite and I'm finite. So God's too big for me to explain God. God's something I feel. And I have a perfect listening vice. And when I want to listen to God, I hear God in like a good direction. And when I shut this down here, I don't. And I self-will it and I'm in trouble. But God is the word I give to this huge, massive power that's love and good. Um, and I had to get over that. But anyway, I just got so angry. And when I separated from the spiritual experience that I had had, I found a new loneliness that was even greater than my drinking, one that I had never known before. And I thought about killing myself. And I talk about that because sometimes we have people in AA who do. And I want for everybody to know that no matter where you are, the key is to be authentic and open. And you don't have to do nothing alone. And that if you stay sober long enough, you may have things come up that aren't going to be popular, but they're things that you've got to be real about. I've had to be real about. And, um, and so I did do one thing right. I went to meetings and I told the truth. I didn't go with my 11-year sober self trying to pretend to be somewhere I wasn't. I cried. And I said, I can't feel God. And I'm speaking at conferences all over the country at this time. So I have this image, right? But I didn't cater to my ego, which is that image. Instead, I catered to my authentic self and I came and I was real. And you loved me. And that Harley Davidson, I bought it in early recovery because they said meditate. Well, mm, I vibrated, man, and I smoked a lot. So, you know, like meditation was like purgatory because I don't just have a committee. I got a firing squad. You piece of junk, they're going to know, da, 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 da. So sitting still was very, very painful. But I get on that Harley and it was louder than me and it shook more than I did. And I could feel God in the wind. And it was my first meditation tool because here's the deal. God will meet us where we are. I didn't have to go to your building or your mountaintop or your ocean. I just have to want to meet God and God will show up on my Harley or wherever else it is. So I got on that Harley because what the other thing that I did right was I was open to God. If he would show up, I just didn't understand why he abandoned my, my grandma. And so it, uh, so I turned 12 years sober and I get on this Harley and I leave a meeting and I get on the highway here, which is huge, huge highway. And, uh, and I'm doing somewhere between 65 and 70 miles an hour. And the next thing I know, I'm hit. 
And according to the police report, I was catapulted 17 foot in the air. And I came down and I landed on the hood of a car. I rolled off that car and that car drove up me. Now here's what I remember. Cause see my ribs went through my lungs so I couldn't breathe. And I got really afraid cause I knew I was dying. Cause when you can't breathe, you're dying. And I got really afraid, probably like my grandma. You know, we're afraid to change home groups. Of course, we're afraid to go to the big meeting in the sky. And so, so I'm laying there and I got afraid. And then I let go in the most absolute way I've ever let go of my life. Because I think eventually when we're dying, that's what we have to do. We didn't have a choice about it. And then what happened was I got wrapped in nothing but love. And I had the best spiritual experience that you could ever hope to have. And that's all I felt was love. And, um, you know, I did live, but I had all the consequences. I lost my business. I lost everything I owned. I have a traumatic brain injury. I have a spinal cord injury. I have all the things. And, uh, and, 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 but boy, how lucky was I because, because here's what happened. I was still, even at 10, 11, 12 years sober, had a certain amount of defensiveness. I'm a street girl. I come from the streets and I still had a certain amount of armor that I wore, even in AA. See, see, I, this is part of why it's so important not to compare ourselves to each other. We don't know where anybody comes from. Some people come in and they did everything in their life was just smooth as, as pie. And, and, and they, they went to college and they went and got a job and then they crossed the line of alcoholism. They're just as alcoholic as me, but they had skills before they got into alcoholism. I'm somebody that didn't. I didn't know how to use the right fork. I didn't know how to go to a nice restaurant. I learned all of that here. I didn't know about money. I didn't know about those things. And so I can't compare myself to people that did. And so my progress was slower than it looked like for some other people because I still stayed rough around the edges. I didn't, I believe people love me in AA, but I believe you love me because you had to. And what happened when I had that wreck, I had nothing to give. And people from Ohio and people from here, they had to make new visiting regulations in the hospital. See, I was all in in the middle of AA. And you were all in with me when this happened. And you know what happened? I felt love to my soul. For the first time in my life, I felt love to my soul. You guys took care of me. My family couldn't show up. They showed up for one week. You showed up. You brought food to my house when I went home. Bikers from Cincinnati came and slept on my couch because I was having seizures and they didn't want me to die in the middle of the night. Nobody expected me to ever be functional again but I had you. So what's going to matter with me? My face was shredded. I look like this. I've had two dozen surgeries putting my face back together. You know, so I lost the things that I thought gave me value on the outside. I'd been very smart. I memorized the big book. I use it as a weapon to, 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 to attack old timers in meetings. The first time I was in the program, this time my sponsor said I wasn't allowed to quote it anymore. So I had stopped that. But this big brain that could memorize the big book couldn't remember your name five minutes after I met you. I have all this lost sober, right? My ability to earn money is gone probably forever. They, I'm, I'm on disability and on food stamps, right? So all government assistance helping me live. You know what you did? You brought me new girls that were feeling sorry for themselves. And they come in my house and say, tell Cindy what you told us. And they take one look at me and say, uh-uh. And then they get coaxed and they say, well, Cindy, well, I have my boyfriend left. I don't know how I'm going to go on. I have a seizure 
and she'd feel better. Now understand, I don't even remember her name. Here's what I know. When people come to my house, they feel kind of sad. And when they leave my house, they feel better. And I feel like Gandhi. And this is what I did right. Because see, I've got to do some things right too. What I did right was I let it be enough. I didn't yell at God and say, having a seizure can't be my most spiritual usefulness. I thank God that I had people that came and wanted to talk to me. And you know what happens when we feel useful? It's why it's why making the coffee is so important when you're new. It's why having a little job in AA is so important. When I feel useful, I get better. And I get better everywhere. And I started to get better. And then this, everything I'm going to tell you happened in six years. And it all happened here in AA in Louisville, Kentucky. And people in Louisville, Kentucky took care of me every step of the way. And people came from Cincinnati and helped too. They got me to every appointment. I couldn't drive. I had seizures and I couldn't remember how to get home. And then I got stage three breast cancer. And I spent the better part of a year doing chemo and radiation. And I spent one day and I said, God, what do you want from me, man? I had this childhood that should have killed anybody. I come off the streets where nobody makes it out alive. I came out of institutions where people are left to rot. You know, then, then I have alcoholism and and then I have a highway motorcycle that should have killed anybody. And now I got cancer. What do you want from me? And I, I paused and guess what I heard? God said, Cindy, what do you want from me? Because see, anybody should have died from the first thing. And here I am alive after all this. And see, that's what recovery does. It doesn't change what happens. It changes the way we look at what happens. You know, so then I got, I got through chemo and radiation. And, um, and, 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 and I had $1,700 to my name and I decided to start a business and I, I, I had no business starting the business. I don't know how to do the business, but anyway, I started a business. And then right after I started the business, I started to fall down and I couldn't get up. And so what had happened when I was a little kid, I got kicked through doors and my back was broke. And what happened was exacerbated that break and shoved my back forward. And so I'm in the hospital and it re-triggered all that stuff. See, I, I didn't think I was so angry about my childhood. I thought I had let it go. Now I'm 17 years sober. And it's like, click, 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 all that trauma. And a beautiful thing. My sponsor made me do forgiveness work. And I got to do a final forgiveness. And it's a long story. But I got to be a free woman from that. And then for the grand finale of this year, six years, that business ended up having some success. And I bought a Victorian house and I, uh, I was showing a contract. I was going to turn the attic into a master bedroom. And I fell through the rafters, landed my neck on my neck in the doorway below my C5 split in half. And I was paralyzed from the chest down. I spent three months in the hospital. They did a miraculous surgery. I don't have a C5 vertebrae. Um, they, they just did some really cool stuff, but I walk. And I move. I still, I've got some more spinal cord stuff going on now. I always will. I will always have severe pain. I will always have a bazillion health issues. But how lucky am I that I'm alive? And you know how many people I get to help because I went through all this stuff? I get to help so many people. And that childhood that I had that I felt so sorry for myself with, all those institutions, all those things, they completely prepared me. Completely prepared me because I don't have a sense of entitlement. I didn't, you know, when all these bad things happened, really, why not? 
that other than that one day that I kind of said, God, what do you want from me? I've never felt sorry for myself. I've always had new people that I can help and make a difference to. How much time do I have? I have not kept track. Can anybody just give me a finger or zero or five or whatever I got? Just put your hand up. I've got 10. Okay, cool. All right, good. Because I'm not quite done because I'm way back at 17 years sober and I'm 37 years sober, but I'll go fast, guys. So, so that time I wasn't sure I wanted to get up. But what does this have to do with sobriety? It has everything to do with sobriety because it's life on life's terms. And it's being happy no matter what happens outside of me or to me. Because being happy happens here. And it happens almost exclusively from being useful with you all. And I can't explain it. Now, that business that I had no business starting, fast forward all this time, it's global. I have a very successful life by anybody's standards. There's no reason why I should. I have three businesses now. It's crazy. And now I'm trying to take away because the more you add to your life, the more of that kind of stuff, the more complicated it is to try to get to you. And you have to be the most important thing to me and God because it's the only time I'm happy. The minute anything else gets in the way of you, it's not just that I wish my sobriety. It's worse than risking my sobriety. It's risking my serenity, my peace of mind that I never dreamed I'd have. I didn't even see when they read those promises in the beginning, I didn't see them as promises. Who gave a crap about peace of mind? I didn't have a point of reference for peace of mind. It meant nothing to me. Today, it means everything to me. Being with you means everything to me. My brother was murdered in 2010. My other brother, he, I don't know, we can't find him now. He's been homeless a long time and he's been in active addiction for longer than I've been sober. And I miss him and I've done everything I can to help him. And I can't do anything more. I can't even find him. And um, my brother was murdered. I had to revisit some of those old things with my dad. And I talk about this because this sobriety is an unlayering. We talk about the onion when we're new. But we don't always talk about it in longer sobriety. Well, I'm still unlayering. And so every time something comes up in my life, I get to revisit pieces and I get a little more whole. I get a little more complete. And see, we grow along spiritual lines. We never get there. We grow there. And, and it's really an incredible thing. So when my brother was murdered, my dad became a jerk again because he doesn't have an ability to deal with his feelings. My dad is not alcoholic. He's dissociative. And um, and it, it's it's hard. I got mad at him again, but I quickly worked through it and forgave him and let it go. But he was very mean to my mom and told her she wasn't allowed to cry past two weeks and because the controlling makes him feel safe. And so I'm able to, instead of judge and be mad at him, I'm able to have compassion for him and my mom at the same time. And I blame my mom most of my life because she didn't protect us. She lied when children's services came in. She did that. And I just hated her. And then my mom, when my brother died, I could see how much pain and grief she had. And for the first time, I was whole enough to see her as a human being. See, I've sponsored women that have really hurt their kids a lot. And I've always been able to love them and hold their hand and not judge them. Now it was time for me to do that with my own mom. See, we, a far better example of how we live is how do we take this into our personal lives? How do we treat people in our personal lives the way we treat each other? And I saw how broken my mom was and I saw how hurt she was. And all I wanted to do was for her life to be better. And three months later, I almost died. I got septic. I'm always having surgeries. They took 18 inches and I got my colon out and I got septic. And my mom's like, please don't die. 
and she turned 70 when I was in the hospital. And the next year, my sister and I took her and my aunt to Kenya for my mom's dream trip. And it was the first time she smiled since my brother was dead. But see, I had to get whole enough that I didn't need anything of my parents so that I could be of service to them too. Because all my life, I've been wanting these people that broke me to fix me because they broke me. But they can't. They don't have the tools. So instead, it's my turn. It's my turn to go and love them in the way I wish they could have loved me. Now, do I do that because I owe it to them? Not at all. I do it because I like me. I like me. Fast forward 10 years, it's COVID. My mom's turning 80. I've spent the last 10 years trying to be the best daughter I can be. Man, she's mad. She's like, she is not going to turn 80 because it's COVID and she can't have her big party or any of that. And I did probably the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. I got a bunch of 80-year-olds to make one-minute videos for me that I could put together for my mom. And I put together an hour worth of videos, one minute. And I went out to Cincinnati and I plugged it in her computer and she's just mad. And I said, watch this, mom. And I watched her and she smiled and then she started crying. And I've never seen my mom cry happy tears in my whole life. You know, and she felt loved. And how lucky am I that you gave me enough of me that I could give her that. Probably the biggest gift of my life. I've been in Cincinnati all week. So, you know, I saved money to buy a second house, right? Most of us buy it in Florida. I ended up buying it in Cincinnati so I could be of service to these people. So I live in Louisville and I live in Cincinnati. My dad's had cancer. I've been taking him to chemo every other week. My, 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 my dad just had a big surgery. He was in the hospital. I just left to come back here yesterday. And, uh, because a life of service is not just to you. A life of service to you is so easy. A life of service to the people that, that, that didn't have enough of themselves to give me what I thought I needed. That's, that's different. And I gotta tell you, I like myself in a way I didn't know was possible. I didn't know was possible. And you know, I do, I, 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 get, to, I get to help all kinds of people, all kinds of places. I get to be on committees, nonprofit boards, all these kinds of things. Nothing is nearly as valuable as this right here. And nothing can get in the way of this. I can never be too busy for this. That other stuff I have, so I can tell you, because I've been completely broke sober is my happiest times, you know? But I can tell you that it doesn't matter. And I can tell you that I'm dismantling. And I can tell you that as long as I got you and God, I have an amazing life and I have something worth living. Thanks for inviting me today.